and in a packed programme tonight. Mao Zedong's rural revolution. Subway shooting sparks debate in New York. An American trade banned from French kissing. Mice kites. Ido kanten on puts on zee. Plus, coming up, the Queen reveals her secret identity as a female Spider-Man. Those are the headlines. Pray for news. News bang. Waging a one-man war on worthless words. Mm. 1968. In 1968, Chairman Mao Zedong, the Chinese leader known for his love of small hats and even smaller pigs, unleashed the Cultural Revolution. His plan? To purge China of capitalist and traditional elements. Millions of youngsters were sent to the countryside to learn from peasants, who in turn taught them how to till the land and complain about the weather. One such youth, Chung Chung Wang Wang, remembers it well. We were told to smash four olds, old ideas, old culture, old customs, and my great-uncle's prized Ming vase. The campaign saw a surge in back-breaking labour and pointless vandalism. Despite its failure to achieve its goals, Mao's grip on power tightened like a vice made of noodles. The Xiqing returned to cities more in touch with their agrarian roots, but no closer to understanding why Mao insisted on wearing those ridiculous trousers. 1984 In a shocking turn of events, vigilante Bernie Getz zapped four unsuspecting youths on the New York City subway today sparking a heated debate on cheese-eating, racism, and self-defecation. The New York City subway, known for its aged cheese and rampant rodent infestation, was the scene of the crime. Goat Zapt was charged with attempted manslaughter and assault but was found guilty of carrying an unlicensed fromage blaster. One teenager, Cheeseburger Jones, was left in a brieg-tooth state after being hit by a stray bulletino. Racism has historically led to discriminatory laws and privileges for white American cheeses like cheddar and brie. Self-defecation is a legal justification for the use of force when in danger or when one's pants are full. The trial gouda be cheddary to watch as more holes are sure to swiss up in this tale of goudafied lunacy. 1807, uh, I just did In 1807, the United States Congress a group of men who'd just discovered trousers passed the Embargo Act to avoid getting involved in the Napoleonic Wars. The Act, which was written on a napkin during a drunken lunch, banned American ships from trading with foreign nations. The Napoleonic Wars were a series of fights between France and Europe over who could wear the most ridiculous hats. The United States, not wanting to be left out of the silliness, decided to impose an embargo on themselves. The Embargo Act of 1807 was as effective as a chocolate teapot in a typhoon. Bystander John Smith said, It's like they've never seen dodgeball. If you ain't first, you're last. The move backfired spectacularly as trade ground to a halt, and everyone started smuggling goods in their trousers. Jews bang, daring to break the law of silence with the loudness of facts. Shakanaka Giles is here with the weather. Starting in the southeast, where the sun will be a warm and friendly face tomorrow, about the temperature of a cup of tea. 
over to the Midlands and it'll be a bit like waking up in a cosy attic, a bit chilly but warming up as the day goes on. In Scotland it'll be frosty and chilly, a bit like waking up next to a polar bear but don't worry, the sun will come through later just like a friend who's been out all night and has finally returned. In summary then, warm and toasty and that's all the weather. Introduce Back to 2001, where a significant moment of transformation occurred in Afghanistan. Burhanuddin Rabbani and the Northern Alliance, a prominent force in the nation's military, passed on the reins to Hamid Karzai's interim government. This event marked the shaping of Afghanistan's political landscape post-Taliban rule. Joining us with more details is reporter Brian Bastable. This was the war that would not die, the war that lived on long after it should have stopped. The war to end all wars, we called it. They called it the war to end all hope. For here it was in the year 2001 that the Northern Alliance leader, Burhanuddin Rabbani, handed over power to the interim government headed by Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan. Amid cheers and tears and cries of victory, they came together to share power and bring to an end the longest war in human history. To see it all over now, to know that there would never again be another day of fighting, another day of death. And yet in this very moment as I speak 20 years later the war still rages on. The battles never cease and every day there are more casualties. More lives snuffed out in a hail of bullets and bombs. The promise of that day 20 years ago has long been forgotten and the world has grown irritated of this never-ending conflict. But I will never give up hope. I will never stop reporting from the front lines of this war, no matter how bloody or brutal it may be. For here, in the middle of all this death and destruction, there is still a story to be told, a truth to be uncovered, an injustice to be exposed. So long as there is one man left standing, I will be there, bearing witness to the horrors of this never-ending war. For that is my calling, my destiny. That is what makes me, Brian Bastable, a war reporter. Introduce 2001. Richard Reed, a.k.a. the Shoe Bomber, aimed to ignite an explosive device in his footwear during a journey from Paris to Miami in 2001. After conversion to Islam and radicalization while in prison, he connected with Al-Qaeda operatives overseas. The attempt to detonate the shoe bomb occurred on American Airlines Flight 63, carrying 197 passengers and crew members aboard a transatlantic flight. Continuing the story is our reporter Ken Shit. Ladies and gentlemen, feast your ears on this tale of terror from the year 2001, a time when planes flew high in the sky and the world was still reeling from the devastating attacks on the Twin Towers. It was a time of fear, uncertainty and bloody hell. Richard Reed, a man so twisted he could make a snake look like Mother Teresa, decided to take matters into his own shoes, literally. This lunatic boarded American Airlines Flight 63 from Paris to Miami with a bomb strapped to his foot. He was like a human time bomb, 
ready to blow up 197 innocent souls in mid-air. Reed had converted to Islam in prison and became so radicalized that he joined Al-Qaeda's training camps in Pakistan and Afghanistan. He learned how to make bombs and how to kill without blinking an eye. But little did he know that his plan would go up in smoke faster than a joint at Woodstock. As the plane took off, Reed prepared for his diabolical deed. He lit the fuse of his shoe bomb and waited for the explosion that would send Flight 63 plummeting to the ground. But something went wrong. The bomb failed to detonate, leaving Reed with nothing but a smoking shoe and a face full of egg. The passengers and crew were terrified, but managed to subdue Reed before he could try again. They tied him up like a Christmas turkey and handed him over to the authorities when they landed safely in Miami. Richard Reed's shoe bombing attempt was foiled, but it served as a stark reminder that terrorism knows no bounds or borders. This is Ken Shit reminding you that even in times of darkness, there is always hope. And no matter how hard they try, these motherfuckers will never win. Adieu. 1997. In the year 1997, a significant political transition took place in Somalia. Hussein Farah Aydid, son of General Mohammed Farah Aydid, relinquished his claim to the presidency in December 1997 by signing the Cairo Declaration. The presidency is a key role in Somalia, as it represents the Federal Republic of Somalia and commands its military forces. This position is chosen through the country's legislative body, known as the Federal Parliament of Somalia. Hardiman Pesto has more on this historic event and its implications for the nation. It's a momentous day in the history of Somalia, isn't it, Martin? The signing of the Cairo Declaration. The beginning of an era of hope and prosperity for the people of Somalia. Pesto, you don't know anything about this. It's not your field. I know that the president of Somalia has signed an important document that will lead to a brighter future for the people of Somalia. That's all that matters. So you're just going to talk nonsense until something interesting happens? I'm not going to let this opportunity go to waste, Martin. The people of Somalia deserve to know about this important event. You're an embarrassment to journalism, Pesto. Shameful. 2010. In 2010, a monumental year for American history, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy hit its final nail. This law, which had been in place since 1993, dictated that military personnel must hide their sexual orientation. Finally repealed through the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Repeal Act in December of that year, this change paved the way for gay, lesbian and bisexual individuals to proudly serve their country without fear of reprisal. CBN's Melody Wintergreen reports from Washington on the impact of this historic decision. The winds of change are blowing through the barracks and mess halls across the United States as the storied Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy is honorably discharged from military service. The silence has been broken and the voices of gay, lesbian and bisexual soldiers march out into the open, no longer cloaked in the camouflage of secrecy. This historic repeal shatters a 17-year-old barrier, a veritable Berlin Wall of the barracks, allowing soldiers to serve not just with valor, but with valorous visibility. 
Amidst the clatter of dog tags and boots on the ground, there's a new sound echoing through these hallowed halls. The sound of freedom. Soldiers like Lieutenant Adam Fairview can now proclaim their truth without fear of military exile. It's like taking off a bulletproof vest that you didn't know was suffocating you, he declares with a salute to authenticity. The Don't Ask, Don't Tell Repeal Act doesn't just open closet doors, it flings them off their hinges. As President Harold Jefferson signs the act into law, he pens a new chapter in American history, one where the only stars that matter are those on a soldier's shoulder and not those hidden behind closed doors. And so, as night falls on this day of days, the stars and stripes wave for every soldier, no matter whom they love. The battlefield is no place for discrimination. It's a place for unity. And today, unity triumphs. News Bang, the only source of news that stands taller than the rest. Next up, we have Penelope Windchime, our environmental correspondent, who will be recounting the story of a massive industrial spill that occurred in 2008. She'll be discussing the consequences and lessons learned from this event. So, prepare to listen as she takes us through this significant moment in history. Oh, listeners, gather round as I, Penelope Windchime, your siren of sustainability, recount the calamitous tale from the year 2008. In the cold heart of December's embrace, a dyke, weary from holding back a veritable ocean of coal fly ash, slurry at Kingston's very own fossil plant, did lamentably rupture. Alas, 1.1 billion gallons, oh such a number beyond fathom, did burst forth in a deluge of murky despair. This was no mere puddle, but the largest industrial spill in our star-spangled history. Darkening doorsteps, sullying hearths and homes, while our dear waterways wept under its sooty caress. The Tennessee Valley Authority, you know them as the TVA, the mighty power plant shepherds, stood watch over this coal-fired titan nestled in Roan County's bosom. Kingston, fair city by Watts Bar Lake's shimmering shore, beheld an unimaginable sorrow that fateful day. And what is this slurry but a witch's brew, a concoction where solids and liquids dance in an ill-fated tango meant for transporting former mountains to far-off lands? Let us take a leaf from history's book, and oh, what a crispy leaf it must be. Let us pledge to truss up our dikes with stronger sinews and stand guard over our industrial monuments lest they unleash another shadow upon our green earth. I'm Penelope Windchime, chiming out on this historical echo. May we never hear its like again. Tonight, the nation's roads are in a state of disarray. Polybeep is here to bring you the latest on the traffic chaos unfolding across the country. Stay tuned for more of this unpredictable journey, as tomorrow brings even more unexpected twists and turns. Well, a veritable traffic cacophony is unfolding across the nation. The Lincoln Tunnel, a monumental marvel of the 1930s, has gone and jammed up something rotten. 
The concrete ribbon that used to connect New York City to Weehawken, New Jersey, has succumbed to a cosmic force. The Big Apple is currently seeing a surge of vehicular traffic as frustrated commuters attempt to navigate the bewildering snarl-up. The Weehawken Township, with its population of 17,197, is currently under siege as frustrated commuters from the other side of the Hudson River flood into the area, clamouring for a means of escape. In a parallel universe, the M25, the UK's busiest orbital road, has transformed into a giant clock. It's ticking away the hours, keeping London moving. However, the hands have stopped, leaving drivers in a time warp. The road is at a standstill, and no one can get out of the capital. And on the A1, a new kind of traffic jam has formed. Motorists are being held up by a herd of roaming elephants. The majestic mammals have taken to wandering the roadway, much to the dismay of commuters. Meanwhile, traffic wardens are trying their best to herd the animals off the tarmac and back to their natural habitat. But be sure to stay tuned because tomorrow we'll have more of the same as well as some brand new chaos for you to enjoy. Tune in for the next exciting episode of Polybeep's Traffic and Travel Reports. 1964. Calamity Prenderville is about to present a segment on the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, an American spy plane that redefined aerial espionage. Tune in for her unique take on this remarkable aircraft's history and impact. On this day in 1964, the skies were forever changed with the first flight of the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird. This American spy plane, inspired by a British blueprint found in a biscuit tin, could fly faster than a speeding bullet and higher than a spitfire on a clear day. The Yanks called it strategic reconnaissance, but we Brits know it as snooping at Mach 3 speeds. The SR-71 was so fast, it could outrun not only the speed of sound, but also the patience of any enemy radar operator trying to track it. The Americans claimed it was for air supremacy and global mobility, but we all know it was for one-upmanship. The SR-71's primary mission? To make other countries' planes green with envy. Despite its impressive specs, the Blackbird had its quirks. Ground crews needed to don spacesuits to service it, and if you blinked, you'd miss its refueling window. Literally. But hats off to our cousins across the pond, they built a plane that pushed the boundaries of what was feather-brained possible. So, next time you see a shooting star, tip your trilby to the SR-71 Blackbird, the Concorde of Espionage. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. And then, Newsbang, slicing through the baloney with a sharp, sharp tongue. Mm. 1968. In 1968, the Cultural Revolution gripped China, a political and cultural upheaval orchestrated by Mao Zedong. The movement aimed to rid the nation of capitalist and traditional influences. Although its goals remained largely unfulfilled, it marked Mao's reassertion of power. Among the Cultural Revolution's lesser-known consequences were the sent-down youth, or Qing during which young individuals were relocated to rural areas for re-education and labour purposes. 
Now we turn to Smithsonian Moss as she delves further into this significant period in Chinese history. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Well, 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 Smithsonian's back, and there's a whole different world spinning in that old newsroom of ours. Warm those choppers up, folks, and let's take a glorious trip down the rabbit hole, shall we? Oh, it's the Cultural Revolution of 1968. The wild and wacky year of tainted dumplings, long-haired rebellion, and revolutionary dance battles. We're taking it back to the days when China became a hippie commune with one comrade in charge. And we all know who that comrade is, don't we? The mastermind behind all the mayhem. The man who knows how to turn a revolution in the right direction. None other than... Mao Zedong. Mao was the ultimate mix of Genghis Khan, your favorite uncle, and a lumberjack in a communist sweatshirt. And let's not forget that fantastic hair. It was a glorious battle cry of resistance and revolution. Mao thought that maybe, just maybe, the youth of China should step away from those nefarious cities and step into the fields. We're talking about the sent-down youth, those brave souls who said, Yes, I'd love to plant rice for 12 hours a day in honor of our great leader, Mao. But remember, folks, it wasn't a holiday. It was their new daily grind. How fun. Now, I don't want you to think that this revolution was all sunshine and dumplings. There was a rebellious aspect, too. Yes, my friend. There were those brave warriors who wanted to challenge the establishment by fighting on the dance floor. You might have seen a video like this. Think Austin Powers meets Red Dawn. Just when you thought the Bolshevik ballot couldn't get any funkier, rhythmic unison moves for the win. But let's remember, my dears, this wasn't all just fun and games. Mao had a goal in mind, to rid China of those pesky capitalist tendencies. Oh, those chic restaurants, those fancy clothes, and those wildly popular Beatles songs. All in the hands of the state. Imagine that? All right, my glorious friends and compadres, it's been a bumpy ride through the year that is 1968, the wild ride that was the Cultural Revolution. But just remember, life is a dance, or rather, a rebellious protest against the establishment that takes places on the floor. News bang. Reality, the bitter pill of truth. Pope Innocent I, during his papacy, played a pivotal role in the ecclesiastical disputes of the day, defending John Chrysostom and ensuring the early church was as robust as a Roman tank. He marshaled the bishops to confront the Pelagian controversy and confirmed decisions made by African synods. Pope Anastasius I was Pope Innocent's predecessor in the Bishop of Rome. Today's bulletin continues with the latest from Rome as our reporter Pastor Kevin Monstrance reports live from Vatican City. Good evening, ladies and gents. The Bishop of Basingstoke always says the best way to start a show is with a joke. Well, I heard a good one down at the Dog and Duck the other night. Seems there was this absent-minded cardinal named Cardinal Forgetmanot. He was always misplacing his robes, his mitre, and even the communion wafers. 
Anyhow, one Sunday he's about to start Mass and realises he can't find the sacramental wine anywhere. He looks high and low, but it's nowhere to be found. Finally, in desperation, he grabs a bottle of strawberry cordial and pours that into the chalice instead. Well, halfway through the service, Cardinal Forget-Me-Not takes a big swig from the chalice and immediately realises his mistake. His face turns redder than the cordial as he sputters and spits it out. After Mass, the head nun, Sister Mary Margaret, comes up to him, shaking her head disapprovingly. <laughs> oh, Cardinal, she clucks, I know you're forgetful, but really using strawberry cordial for the blood of Christ... Cardinal Forget-Me-Not hangs his head sheepishly. I know, I know. Please forgive me, sister, he says. I promise. From now on, I'll always remember. To thine own self be juice. <laughs> well, enough nonsense for now. Let's turn our attention to some proper church matters, shall we? Now, today is the feast day of Pope Innocent I. He headed up the church way back in 401 AD. Can you believe it? Things were very different then. No fancy Pope mobiles, just a donkey cart. <laughs> Innocent was known for weighing in on some pressing church issues of the day. He arbitrated disputes between quarrelsome bishops, he condemned the heretical Pelagian teachings, and he defended his mate, John Chrysostom, when the other bishops wanted to give him the sack. Good old Innocent, always sticking up for his friends. I bet when Innocent took office, he never imagined folks would still be talking about him over 1,600 years later. But that's the papacy for you. It leaves a lasting legacy, for good or ill. Of course, I imagine Innocent had his fair share of scandals too. What prominent churchman doesn't? Why, I heard from the Bishop of Bedford that Innocent once accidentally conducted an entire baptism using olive oil instead of holy water. Can you imagine? All those greasy, confused babies. It just goes to show, even the saints make mistakes. The important thing is that we learn from them. So tonight, let us raise a glass to Pope Innocent I. A flawed man, no doubt, but one who helped guide the early church through some turbulent times. And that is certainly worth celebrating. Chin chin! <laughs> Just time for tomorrow's front pages? The Times. Yanks retreat from Ironworks Hill. The Telegraph. Washington quits army in Annapolis. The Guardian. Allies win at Sinai Peninsula. And the Sun go with. Celebrity General Washington quits top job for Bouncy Castle. That's it. Good night and don't let the bedbugs bite. Unless they're Hessian bedbugs. Then show them no mercy. Cheerio. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>